Welcome to episode number 12 of the Foundations of Sports podcast, where our game plan is to present positive sports stories and the people who have the mindset of character, hard work, humility, and who lead by their actions. I'm your host, Chris Horgan, and thank you for joining us. The college football season is headed down the home stretch. FCS playoffs, FBS bowl games, and the 14 playoff are all coming up. Today's episode is about one very special football player and even better person. There are some people who leave a legacy that lasts forever. Freddie Steinmark was part of the 1969 National Championship University of Texas football team that beat Arkansas. He was one of the captains and leaders of the team, but he was even a better person off the field. His work ethic and character was demonstrated in everything he did. Freddie's leg didn't feel right during that season, and after the national championship game, he had his doctors check out his leg. Six days after that game, Freddie's leg was amputated, and his battle with cancer had begun. Today's guest is Bauer Yusei, childhood and family friend of Freddie, as well as his high school teammate and author of the book titled, Freddie Steinmark, Faith, Family, Football. We talk about Freddie's life and speak about the impact he had on everyone he came in contact with. By helping teammates to an unrelentless work ethic, to a quest to learn as much as possible on and off the field, and to most importantly, his love of his family, Freddie led by his actions. He took cancer head on, just like a tackler on the football field, with courage, strength, and toughness. Today, this is his story. Bauer, welcome to the Foundation to Sports podcast. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about Freddie. Wheat Ridge, Colorado. Tell us how you met Freddie Steinmark. Uh, he was uh, he was actually a Denver kid. He lived in North Denver, which was the Italian area. <clears throat> and his dad was a Denver policeman. And uh, due to some, some kind of financial circumstances, the family had to move to Wheat Ridge, which is a suburb of Denver. And uh, so I met Freddie when we were, uh, I think we were nine years old. And he played on two Little League football teams. I met him on the football field. And you guys became very close from that point. And certainly you saw Freddie up close. How was he as a, as a high school student and uh, a football player? He was an incredibly intense uh, athlete and student. Uh, and I mentioned that I met him when we were Little League football players. The first time he ever tackled me, I literally, on the way to the ground, I, I thought in my mind that I had been hit by a bus. <laughs> and when I when I sort of came to, I was lying on the grass on my side, and he was looking right at me. He was lying on the grass, and I I said, "Geez, Freddie," and he said, "Geez, what?" And I realized that when he was on the football field, he had no friends. Off the field, you know, they're back to being friends, and that that was uh, a sentiment expressed throughout his life. The guys at Texas expressed it uh, in, in high school. It was the same thing. He he refused to lose. He just pushed himself all the time. And what it did was make all of his teammates work harder. I'm sure you've been around people like that. They just they 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 are at such a high level that just forces everyone to try to be at that level too. And it you know it made us for a great team. Something that really comes forward in the book is that he was a leader by his actions on and off the field, and especially, you know, during your time there uh, in high school football. But there was one particular practice when he showed his true character. One of your teammates, Mike Rich, was having a tough practice. The coaches were getting on him. Some of the players were getting on him. Tell us what Freddie did after that practice. You know, I didn't even know about this story. I mean, I certainly remember that day, but I didn't know what had happened with Mike until I started working on the book and I was contacting some of our old teammates. Mike Rich was, uh, he was a big guy. He was on the second string. And one practice, he just had a hard time. And the coach was on him all day. And uh, at the end of practice, to get back up to our locker room at our school, we had to, there were stairs up this long hill. But there were also just, you know, it was a ruddy hill. And uh, coach told us to line up and run the hill. And he was punishing Mike Rich for having a bad practice. The coach was a good motivator. He was really forcing all of us to work harder, and uh, he just took it out on Rich. So when Mike Rich got to the locker room, he told me that he sat down on the curb outside the door, and he didn't he didn't want to go in. He he had heard guys saying, you know, Rich caused this, and you know, it was a, just a horrible afternoon. So he was going to quit. And as always, Freddie was the last guy up. 
from the practice field and he saw Mike and he sat down and he said, what are you doing out here? And Mike Rich said, you know, you know what I'm doing out here. And Freddie said, well, <clears throat> we had a bad day, Mike. He just sat down beside him and he said, some days are like that, but you're part of this team and tomorrow's going to be a better day. You'll see. And Mike said he looked at Freddie and Freddie was absolutely sincere. And so he got up and went in the locker room with Freddie. And true enough, Mike said, that's the most important thing that ever happened in my life. I'll never forget that. That's the kind of guy Freddie was. He just, he made you be a better person. Something like that, where he's genuinely concerned for his teammates. That's the definition of a leader right there. Absolutely. And I'll tell you another thing. When he was a little kid, uh, he scored, I think he scored 10 touchdowns in one of our little league games. And after the game, everybody was so excited. I, I think maybe Freddie was about 11 when this happened. And his mother and father realized that Freddie really could control the outcome of a game virtually by himself. And they sat him down and they said, you need to remember something. Uh, 10 touchdowns is really great, Freddie, but you are never more important than your teammates. And if you go back and look at press clippings from all of his games through all of his life, he always credits his teammates with everything. It doesn't matter how spectacular he was in the game. He will start off by saying, well, you know, I couldn't have done this without my teammates. So he's very humble, always that way. Another example of him uh, helping the teams, doing things for other people. When he was at Texas, uh, he had a friend named Billy Dale. And Billy Dale was a tremendous football player from Odessa, Texas. And in the locker room, when they got the starting, you know, they finally practiced it, ended, and they knew who the starters were going to be. And Billy Dale was kind of upset. And Freddie said, what's wrong? And he said, my mother is outside the locker room, and she is so excited because she thinks I'm going to be a starter this year. I, I can't go out there. And Freddie said, you want me to go talk to her? And he said, if you wouldn't mind. But he went out, and he told Mrs. Dale that um, Billy was upset, that he found out that he wasn't going to be a starter. But it was okay because he was a great football player, and she knew that. And Freddie said, you'll see, he's going to do great things. The most incredible thing, in the Cotton Bowl in 1970, Billy Dale scored the winning touchdown against Notre Dame. Wow. It's amazing, um, as you go through your book there, the stories and the impact to this day that Freddie had on other people's lives. You talk about his humility, and that's the first characteristic that stands out. It's also his caring and his genuine, like you said, your, his genuine care for others. It definitely stands out. And something that you also speak about in this book is his legendary work ethic to go along with his humility. How did his training, his discipline, and his fourth quarter fitness provide opportunities for Freddie to excel in high school, but then on the college football field as well? well he got that from his father. Um, his father was a tremendous athlete in his own right. In fact, Big Fred was, uh, we called him Big Fred. He was our coach in football and basketball, uh, baseball for a lot of years. Um, Big Fred was the All-American boy in 1947, I think. Uh, he was just a tremendous baseball player. And he, uh, he, he just he instilled things in Freddie that, that Freddie then gave all of us. And one of those things was always do everything at full speed. When you're practicing, it, it doesn't do you any good to practice at one speed and then get in the game and try to do it at a different speed. So he was always full speed all the time. And there was no no cutting of corners with Freddie. It was either you're committed to it or you're not. Uh, whether it was running wind sprints, lifting weights, it, it didn't matter. And in schoolwork, the same way. Freddie always said, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the school. But it turned out that he was about ranked 15th out of uh, 569 students because he studied so hard. And he said, I have to study. You know, he says, I'm not, I'm not smart like Dave Dirks and some of these guys who they don't even really have to study. He said, I do. And so it just, everything he did was, was, you know, with total commitment to being as good as he could be to do his very best. Uh, they saw that at Texas too. And, you know, Freddie was the, the first out of state football player that Daryl Royal ever recruited. Um, he didn't have to go anymore. You know, he had Texas right there. When uh, when we left high school, you know, Freddie had led our our high school team to our first ever state championship. 
and changed the whole attitude of our community, by the way, in doing that. Everybody thought, well, he's going to be, you know, picked up by somebody. I mean, he'll have scholarship offers all over the place. <clears throat> well, he was getting he was getting offers from small schools. Nobody wanted to give him a shot because he was too small. He was Freddie was five nine and one hundred and fifty pounds. And our coach happened to know uh, Mike Campbell at Texas, and he he sent him some films of Freddie. And so Campbell showed them to Daryl Royal, and Royal watched. <laughs> Royal watched 20, 20 feet of film, 13.3 seconds to watch that much film. Shot off the projector and he said, go get that kid. That is the kind of kid you win championships with. So all of a sudden, Freddie was going to Texas. And, you know, it was, it was very exciting. He never wanted to play anywhere but Notre Dame because he was a very strong Catholic. So he goes to Texas as a tremendous freshman unit leads the freshman to an undefeated season. And, and Royal was in a little bit of hot water at that time because Texas hadn't really been you know, living up to its expectations. So when he became a sophomore, Royal made him the starting safety, only the second sophomore that Royal had ever started. The first one was Tommy Nobis. Not only did he make him the starting safety, he made him the defensive signal caller as a sophomore because Freddie, there was just something about him on the football field he knew angles and, and where people were going to be. And in fact, the freshman coach made the comment one time that Freddie must be must must be a, a geometry made major because he figures out where to go all the time before anybody else. <laughs> and it was true. So um, you know, he and some of the Texas guys told me when the, when he first got there, they thought he was a manager. He just was. He was so little, and he he proved them all wrong. He really became the heart of that team, and. Um, he inspired everybody, you know. I mean, all of those guys have told me that there just was no one like him. When he uh, was growing up, he said his prayers every night on his knees beside his bed. When he went to college there at Texas in the football dormitory, every night on his knees beside his bed. That That's how much, you know, he was dedicated to his faith. And they let him do it. They just, they said he just, he was a very unique guy. He would go out and, you know, drink with those guys, party with them, but he never had beers or anything. He only drank Cokes. He was always in training. He said, he, he set an example for everyone, Chris. I mean, you can imagine, uh, five, nine, 150 pounds, he gets to Texas and wins them over almost immediately because he just was so dedicated, worked harder than anybody. They had, a, they had a trainer there, uh, Medina, and he just, he, it, it was a, a matter of pride with him to drive everybody so hard in preseason until they just dropped. And he couldn't wear Freddie out. And he told Royal one day, he says, I can't wear that kid out. I don't know what it is. They must have something in the water up in Colorado. And Royal said, well, get some of that water down here. Trey <laughs> had a relationship with Royal that uh, a lot of those guys told me was just it was very special. He was he was almost like an assistant coach to Royal, even as a sophomore, you know, and everybody respected him for that. And Royal talked to him all the time. You know, uh, one of the things that you asked me about before we, we started doing this was uh, Coach Akers, the defensive backfield coach, made the comment that Freddie always lit it up and what he was talking about was um, the freshman coach was sort of a grandfatherly guy, you know, trouble with some players' problems or whatever, and Freddie would walk by his office. He would say, Freddie, come in here. And Akers said five minutes later, they'd both come out of his office just laughing and having a great time. He just he, he said he just lit everybody up. He wouldn't let you be down. And, you know, when we get to the latter part of Freddie's life, that was, that was one of the most incredible things was the fact that he wouldn't let anybody ever get down. Everything was always looking up. So he did light it up. I really enjoyed the book when you mentioned that he was a 20-footer. And I'm reading. I was like, what does that mean? And you said the 13.3 seconds of film that Coach Royal watched. And just to see how he moved and how you also pointed out that he was the signal caller as a sophomore. And you also speak about in the book is the reason for that is he had something that, to quote you, laser-like focus and also, to paraphrase you, attention to detail. Details were so important to Freddie. And that's a reflection on what he was able to do on the field. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, but everywhere, Chris. It was, it, was, it was the way he conducted himself in school, the way he conducted himself off the field. 
Uh, it was his dedication to his church. He just was very focused. Freddie had five priorities in life. One was faith, two was family, three was school, four was sports, and five was everything else. And everything he did in his life was done according to those priorities. And faith really did guide every step he ever took. I mean, he was, uh, you know, he would, uh, he would, you know, make the sign of the cross a couple of times before every game. I mean, he just was, you know, everything was God's blessing to him. He was certainly a very dedicated uh, person and certainly skilled on the football field in the classroom. And we also know that he did play a little baseball. Tell us a little bit about his baseball career. He was a tremendous baseball player. He was a shortstop. He was a tremendous hitter. One of the reasons that he was so excited about getting an opportunity to play at Texas was Royal encouraged those guys to do other sports. And there were a number of guys on the football team who played on the baseball team. Freddie would have, uh, and he was drafted by the Cincinnati Royals when we were seniors in high school. And, and not high up in the draft, but the fact that he was drafted at all was you know, pretty, pretty exciting to all of us. Not to his dad, however. Uh, like Fred said, because Freddie's sisters came home one night and they said, we heard you got drafted by the Cincinnati uh, Reds. And he said, I did. And Big Fred said, and that's the end of, that's the end of that discussion. You're going to go to college and get a degree, and then you can play sports, whatever you want to do. So uh, when he was going to be a sophomore, Royal asked him to not go out for baseball because Freddie was going to be the only returning uh, starter you know, in the defensive backfield. And he said, we've got a lot of young guys here, and they need some leadership. And I'd really appreciate it if you didn't play baseball. And so Freddie <clears throat> didn't play baseball that year, once again, dedicated to the team. So he probably, uh, he could have made it as a professional baseball player. I think he could have made it as a professional football player, too. You know, he just was not to be denied. He could have made it as anything. Anything that he put those characteristics to, whether it be sports or uh, business, doctor, medicine, coach, whatever it may be, he would have been successful and he, w he would have had that impact uh, on people that he did in his life there. Before the 69 college football season, I, I know Freddie had stopped playing at Texas, but he was still playing uh, locally when he was home uh, at Colorado during the summer. But tell us what happened on the baseball field uh, before that college football season. He was playing uh, every summer. He played baseball uh, with the Boulder Collegians, which was a semi-pro team. And uh, I think it was in June, he hit a single that he tried to stretch into a double. And when he slid into second base, he felt something in his leg. Something just popped. And, you know, Freddie was the kind of guy that could play injured. Uh, <laughs> this is famous stories when he was a little kid. His mother had to cut the toe off of his football shoe. I think that was when he was 10, so that he could play because his toe was infected. I mean, he just had a reputation for that. So he uh, he feels this in his leg, and he it must be a you know Charlie horse or something, and it never went away. But of course, he just kept assuming that it was a bone chip after that or something. But April told me when the junior football season started, which was the season right after this leg injury, just immediately that Freddie. He just seemed to be a little slower than he was as a sophomore. Uh, Fred Aker said, you know, we just let him do his own thing. He just was that kind of a guy. He, you know, he ran his own ship. And even though he had slowed down, uh, he was still playing very well. He was, you know, the heart of the defense. He wasn't intercepting as many passes. He was, you know, knocking them down because he just wasn't getting there fast enough. But the leg bothered him. And people have asked me many times, Freddie must have known that, you know, his leg was worse than a bone chip or something. And I'm, I think that he did. He, Freddie was a very, uh, very smart guy about his body. He was very in tune with it. I think that Freddie knew he had something really bad and he didn't want to go see the trainer, get medical attention for it because he could keep playing despite the pain. And he knew that if he, if he did get, get some medical help, they'd probably find something that would force him to stop playing. And I think he just wanted to play as long as he possibly could. It, it even goes back when he was, uh, I think he was six years old, he wanted a football helmet for Christmas. And he got one. He got a you know bright, shiny red football helmet. And, and then we actually have you know home movies of this. He put the football helmet on and never took it off. He's right through the family dinner with all the, you know, the Steinmarks and the Marchettis, you know, about 60 people there. 
I mean, you can see him eating through the face mask on this helmet. I just think that he never wanted to stop playing. And uh, so he just kept going. Uh, one interesting thing is after Texas beat Arkansas um, in the game of the century, by the way, on December the 6th, Freddie found out that Notre Dame had accepted a bid to play them in the Cotton Bowl, uh, which was a stunning thing because the last time Notre Dame had been in a bowl game was 1925. Uh, when Newt Rockney was the coach and the four horsemen were in the backfield. Notre Dame decided, you know, if we go and beat Texas in the Cotton Bowl, we we, we have a legitimate uh, claim to being the national champion. But he was very excited about this because as much as he wanted to play at Notre Dame, and he knew he'd never get the chance to play against them, all of a sudden he has a chance to play against them. Immediately called his mother and he said, I wasn't big enough to play for them, but I'm big enough to play against them. Well, Two days later, he went to the doctor, and he said, my leg really is bothering me. And that's when they discovered that he had the, the tumor in his leg. Six days after the national championship game, Freddie's leg was amputated at the hip. It's hard to imagine, really, what had to have gone through his mind. How, I mean, how do you deal with that? You're on top of the world one minute, and the next minute, your life is turned completely upside down. But it was the way he handled all of that that inspired everybody. You know, that was at a time the um, country was racked by Vietnam protests. Nixon had initiated the draft lottery uh, on December the 1st. So only five days before that national championship game, a bunch of those guys got low draft numbers. You know, they were going to end up probably going into the service. So when this happened to Freddie, it sort of, it stopped the world in a sense. It certainly stopped the sports world. When Freddie was at uh, MD Anderson, there were so many flowers coming in there that, you know, they could hardly breathe in the hospital. And Freddie asked that, uh, you know, they take all those flowers and give them to put them around in the hospital. He was so focused on, you know, getting better. This wasn't going to stop him. His goals in life had just changed overnight. You know, instead of being a pro football player, maybe he'd be a pro golfer. Instead of being a chemical engineer, maybe he'd be a lawyer now. He wasn't going to let it stop him. And he, and he didn't let anybody around him get down about it either. I went to visit him one time in the hospital, and he wasn't in his room. And Doyle said that something happened to him, and the nurse said, no, I'll show you where he is. And she took him over to a window on the fourth floor, and they looked down in the parking lot, and she said, see him? And he's practicing getting in and out of a car with his crutches because they, he wanted to go to the cotton ball game. And then she said to Royal, you know, I have to tell you, this is a very sad place. Everybody in here is going to die. And all of us who work here, you know, it's, it's hard to come every day and know that you're going to be dealing with people, but they don't have one. And she said, he has changed everything. We, we can't wait to come in every day and see him. He's just, he's upbeat. He's, you know, life, life goes on. Life is good. He's absolutely changed the way everybody thinks. And one of the things he did do, and that's why I, I tell people when I make talks about Friday, he's had an effect on all of us. You know, even you, anybody you know, because he changed the way we talk about cancer. When he got cancer, it was one of those subjects that you, you didn't know what to say. And you sort of, some people would avoid people that had cancer. You just, it was, it was a little bit like in 1983 when AIDS was discovered. You just you didn't know what to do. That's how cancer was in 1969 when Freddie got it. And all the hospitals were, you know, they were painted that drab green color. And when you think about how we deal with cancer now, breast cancer, for example, I mean, you know, we have football teams wearing pink. We ha I mean, there's so many things that we do differently. And it was really because of the way he changed the conversation about it. What you said there, Bauer, really captures the essence of Freddie. Six days after they beat Arkansas in the national championship game, where he was out there on pure guts and courage with his leg, six days after he has his leg amputated, uh, and you talk about his guidepost, and you mentioned a little bit earlier, but in the book you talk about commitment, passion, directness, faith, and heart. They were his guideposts, and that's quoting your book there. Tell us a little bit, there's one particular story I want our listeners to know about is when he was leaving the hospital on Christmas Eve, tell us what he did for the other patients there. His family was uh, staying in the uh, the Mayfair Hotel across the street from MD Anderson. And when Freddie found out that they were going to let him leave on Christmas Eve, he, he had gone around and he had seen that there were like 50 little kids in the hospital. 
and he, and he asked, what, you know, what do we do with these kids, you know, over you know, the holidays? And they said, well, you know, they can't go home, obviously. He said he had 50 bucks in his wallet, and he gave the money to his sister and brother and girlfriend at the time. And to just go out and buy whatever you can buy with this money, you know, coloring books, crayons, little stuffed animals or whatever. Found a Woolworths that was open. And they went in there and bought all this stuff and, and they came back and it was distributed to the kids in the hospital. He's so focused on little people, on the little kids. He, you know, he promised President Nixon, Nixon became very fond of Freddie. He told Nixon that he would be at the Cotton Bowl. This was, you know, a couple of days after the surgery. He said, I'll be on the sidelines with my team at the Cotton Bowl. And, and the doctors in the room shook their heads. And like, that's not going to happen. That isn't in the protocols. And when he hung up, they said, Freddie, that's not going to happen. And he said, yes, it is. We, we got a lot of work to do. And, of course, he was there just 20 days after he was on the sideline with his team. I mean, it just was a it was an incredible inspiration to me. You know, and I got to say something about Coach Royal. Imagine being the coach of those guys. They win the national championship, and two days later, they find out that uh, you know their starting safety's got some kind of a health problem. But less than a week later, he loses his leg. Well, how do you get? How do you go from being national champions to being hit in the face with that kind of news, and then have to get up? and be motivated to play Notre Dame, who hadn't been in a bowl game in 45 years. Royal was amazing. I mean, it's one of the reasons he was a great coach. To engineer that kind of uh, dealing with emotions for those guys, uh, I'm still just amazed by it. Wow. And Coach Royal kept them together, and they ended up beating Notre Dame in the Cotton Bowl. Tell us about the locker room scene after with Coach Royal and, and what happened with Fred. Incredibly emotional, of course beating Notre Dame, but having Freddie there was, uh, it was just an overwhelming uh, emotion for everyone. Coach Ron made a little speech and he, you know, he said, uh, we got a guy here that, uh, you know, we, we care a lot about. And it was all he could say. He just, he, I think he wanted to say more, but he, he held up the game ball and he said, you know, Freddie, here it is. And everybody cheered wildly. Freddie was walking off the field after they beat Notre Dame. A reporter asked him, you know, how do you feel? And he said, this is the greatest day of my life. They beat Notre Dame. Frank Leahy, who, you know, argue, arguably one of the, you know, probably the second greatest coach ever at Notre Dame, showed up at Freddie's funeral because he wanted to be there. I mean, there's, there's so many things about Freddie that he, he affected people. And, 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 he, and I'm still getting emails from all over the world a couple of years after the book was released from people who have read the book or whether seen the movie My All America, which was based on Freddie's life, people who have been diagnosed with cancer, and Freddie's an inspiration to them. It's just, it's incredibly meaningful. And, and you've, you might wonder why it took so many years for the family to um, get this book out and for the movie to come out. And it really was such a painful thing to them, especially his mother. Uh, she just, you know, his last 48 days were in Indiana, Anderson, and it was a very, very hard 48 days. And Gloria says, that Gloria's his mother, and she says, you know, when people talk about Freddie, they always remember the great fun times and the tremendous athletic exploits and all of those things. And she said, I always think first about those 48 days. I can't ever get away from that. Didn't want to do the story. And then when these guys decided to make the movie, My All-American, Gloria was worried that it's going to be the Hollywood version of, of Freddie's life. And, you know, to some extent, that's true. And she said, I, I think that we need to write his biography so that people will know who he really was. And so that's why the book came out at the same time the movie came out. And the movie's great. Freddie's real story is, is in the book that I co-authored with, with Tom, Tom Stein. It was, a, it was a tremendous honor to, to be asked to write the book. It was very scary. I didn't want to fail Freddie. I didn't want to be, I didn't want it to be anything less than he deserved. And, um, you know, I, I, I hope that I, I hope that I told the story in a way that uh, he would be proud of too, even though he's so humble. <laughs> Reading the book, I felt like I knew Freddie, and this is going back 55, almost 60 years ago. I felt like I knew him, and that's what I want to get through to everyone listening is that 
the book is such an inspiration and, and Freddie provides really a, a game plan on how to live life from being a person of character to humility, to hard work, to caring for others, but also, you know, a toughness and a grittiness that, you know, is everlasting if you think about it. And you did a great job with the book, Bow. I appreciate that very much, Chris. Thank you. I, it makes me very happy that you uh, feel like, you know, Freddie, after you read the book in, in the truth is, that's what his mother wanted. Um, and that's why they asked me to write the book because I knew him better than anyone. And um, so I, I, I've heard that before and it always makes me so happy. And you talk about his mom and his family. Family was so important to Freddie. Tell us about his relationship with his parents and his brothers and sisters. The most important relationship was with his mother. They were very, very close. Um, when... When Freddie was two years old, Big Fred was playing professional baseball. And he was, the rumor was that he was going to get called up. And so he thought he was going to the big leagues. And he called Gloria in Denver. She was living in her mother's basement. And he said, Gloria, start packing. I, I think we're, we're going, we're moving up. And I don't know if he thought he was going to the Yankees or someplace. And she said, Fred, I think it's time for you to come home and be a father. But he is two years old. He needs his father. And Big Fred, in that moment, gave up his dream of playing professional baseball, you know, playing the big leagues, and went home and and became the All-American dad. Uh, And then a short time after that, Gigi was born. Uh, They're two years apart. Uh, And then PK was born. And then Sammy is the fourth kid, he was seven years younger than Freddie. And when Freddie and I were 11 years old, Big Fred gave Freddie the responsibility of looking after Sammy, four-year-old kid, because Big Fred was a Denver policeman. He worked he worked two and three jobs all the time to make ends meet, and Gloria was working. And so Sammy was with us all the time. As soon as Sammy would get out of school or any place, he would he would ride his bike to wherever we were, and he would always be at practice. So much so that when we had our 50th high school reunion, Sammy was invited to the reunion. He just was, he was a part of all of us, you know, seven years. I used to tell people that Sammy and I were best friends in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Seven years younger. Sometimes the book is Faith Family. Um, Family was the second most important thing behind Faith. Sammy really was the... I think the most important family relationship to Freddie because he felt a tremendous uh, responsibility. And and really, he raised Sammy. He also was aware, and I think this is really important, that he was aware that trying to follow in his footsteps was going to be very difficult for Sammy. Um, You know, when you've got a, a rock star like that and then you're coming along as the younger brother, it's just, it's hard. You know, because you're you're being measured all the time. The thing about it is, Sammy really never got to play little league football because he always had to be with us. Um, when he finally did get a chance to play football in high school, he he excelled and he became an all-state uh, wide receiver. Sammy actually went to Texas his freshman year and roomed with Earl Campbell. Wow. <laughs> Um, and then Fred Akers got transferred to, and Fred Akers got the head coaching job at Wyoming, and he asked Sammy to go with him and rebuild the program, and and, and Sammy did. And, you know, Sammy ended up playing for two years with the Minnesota Vikings. Um, and then he became a coach, and ultimately he coached for 18 years at Air Force Academy and four years at Navy. Sammy did, oddly enough, and he wasn't trying to, but Sammy pretty much did everything that Freddie probably wanted to do with his life. Played pro football, all of those things. And he, he really did. Sammy has just become such a rock star in his own right. He, he's in the oil business now. He got tired of coaching because he was always gone from his family. Sammy uh, has a son and three daughters, and he named his son Freddie Joe. Wow. To honor his brother. Uh, that's it's something else, like you said. And I know when Freddie was battling and, and things took a turn for the worse, he was still more concerned about his parents and his brothers and sisters than himself, asking about how they were doing in school, 
different events really, really represented how um, just the person that Freddie was, despite what he was going through, that bond and that relationship that he had with all his family members. That's absolutely correct. You know, when he uh, was going to come out of surgery, he asked Father Balmar to come to the, you know, to the recovery room and tell him, you know, did I lose my leg or not? Because he didn't want his parents to have to do it. And then he was very worried about, you know, what was Sammy going to think and react when he saw Freddie after the surgery. And um, <laughs> when they, when Sammy got down there, um, he ran through the hospital, found Freddie's room and leaped onto the bed, you know, because he hadn't seen him for quite a while, which panicked everybody. And, you know, Freddie left and he thought it was fine. And, you know, Big Fred was chasing Sammy and very upset and, Sammy said, can I see it? And Freddie said, you want to see my, my leg? And he says, yeah. And so Freddie pulled the sheet back and Sammy's eyes got very big because there was no leg there. And Sammy looked at Freddie and he said, Freddie, we got to get you out of here before you do something else. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, it's wonderful to hear that freddie's legacy is being carried on by yourself and sammy and certainly uh everyone who came in contact with him when freddie passed away something occurred at the steinmark family house that let everyone know that freddie was with him what was that occurrence that was the day that freddie's body uh, had been flown back to denver from houston and Fred had gone to the airport to meet the plane, and uh, this was, uh, I think this was just the day after me had passed. A big lightning bolt hit the chimney in the house. This is so incredible. Bricks fly everywhere. It, you know, it was, a, it was a brick house, and bricks were all painted white, and, and bricks flew everywhere, and you can imagine that there's cars parked everywhere. Not a single brick hit a single car. Inside the home, the wall was singed where the, you know, the chimney went up, there was a there's a picture of Freddie that hung on the mantle, and that was the one thing on the wall that didn't fall off. I mean, the place just shook. Gloria went to the door, couldn't imagine what had happened, and Frank Caputo is standing in the middle of the sidewalk with his arms up in the air looking at the sky, and he said, Gloria, it's a sign that Freddie is here. And there was a big rainbow. It was symbolic of God's throne. And Gloria was just immediately comforted by that. And, um, you know, it, it sounds paranormal. It sounds metaphysical, but it, it absolutely happened. You know, there's lots of things like that about Freddie that sort of get people's attention. Like his old high school, the athletic director tells me who he's retired now. He said, you know, we won games we never should have won. And people would say, how did that happen? <laughs> so, he said, I'm telling you guys, the spirit of Freddie Steinmark is always with us. At the homecoming game, when they honored us for uh, winning the state championship, our 50th anniversary, unbelievably, the score of the game ended with Wheat Ridge winning 43 to nothing. That was Freddie's number in high school. There's not a lot of football games that, you know, 43 is one of the scores. I mean, it's just, you know, little things like that, and we all just sort of, that's the Freddie factor. It just, it, it's an amazing thing. Certainly, it really is, and... He he impacts everyone, and you spoke a little bit about President Nixon and his conversation with Gloria after Freddie died, but tell us how Freddie's courageous battle inspired the country to take cancer head on. That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. Um, Nixon couldn't be at Freddie's funeral, but he sent Jay Wilkinson, who was Bud Wilkinson's son. Bud Wilkinson called the Arkansas game, by the way, pulled Gloria aside and said, the president has asked me to ask you if there's anything he can do to comfort you. And she said, there is. Tell him to fight cancer like he fights all these other wars. And Jay said, I will tell him that. Went back to Washington and Congress got very busy crafting the legislation for the National Cancer Act, which six months later, on December 23rd, 1971, Richard Nixon signed into law. And uh, it's on YouTube, actually. It's, it was quite a ceremony, but that commenced America's war on cancer. Freddie died on June 6th, 1971. That was a Sunday night. And the, morning, the next Monday morning, Howard Cosell did an incredible 
about 90 seconds tribute to Freddie, which is, it's so powerful. And we found a tape of it when we were going through some memorabilia. We're doing a documentary about Freddie now, and that'll be in there. The other thing that happened, both of Texas's senators went on the Senate floor and made speeches about Freddie and called on the president to do something about cancer because we can't, we just can't lose people like Freddie, such a great human being. That was the inspiration for the National Cancer Act of 1971. One of the things it did was it put a tremendous amount of money into cancer research, but Congress also wrote it so that it couldn't get all kinds of attachments and then get voted down. It just was a straight shot right to the president. Freddie continues to impact us every day. Absolutely every day. The scoreboard at the uh, University of Texas is the Freddie Steinmark scoreboard. Two years ago, we, we rededicated the scoreboard. Big Fred was alive when they dedicated the first scoreboard. He was very happy that they put Freddie's name on the scoreboard because one of the things Big Fred always told Freddie was, if you're not going to play to win, don't turn on the scoreboard. So having his son's name on the scoreboard was, was pretty magical to him. Sometimes I, I tell people if I'm making speeches about Freddie, we all have a scoreboard scoreboard at the end of our life. And it's something to think about. You know, it's light that thing up. You got to play to win. You got to give it your best at all times. There's just no cutting corners. Every single thing you do matters. And that's how Freddie lived his life. Whether it was studying, playing, playing, it's a good lesson. Just think about that scoreboard up there in the distance somewhere. What's great about his name on the scoreboard is something that you referenced a couple minutes ago is the Freddie factor. So if Fans who know him are going to be reminded of the man and person of character that he was. But also you have visiting teams that come in and it, there's going to be people who have never heard of Freddie that then will know who that great man that he was by looking up at that scoreboard. That's, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, when you think about this, Chris, this was, this was 50 years ago. And yet he's still so important. Um, I mean, it's, he had a huge impact on on so many lives. Um, in June, it was uh, a year ago in June, Sammy and I and Freddie Joe went to Chicago, and uh, Freddie was inducted into the Sports Faith International Hall of Fame, which was really, really cool. And the McCaskey family is behind that, I think. The Chicago Bears yeah. family. So, you know, honors are still coming in. Uh, an interesting thing that happened when I was doing my book tour in Houston the day after Thanksgiving a couple of years ago, a woman came running in right as we had ended the, the talk, and she had the book under her arm, and she said, am I too late? So I had for this, and I grabbed my husband, and I said, I have to go then. So I'm signing the book, and I said, did you know Freddie? And she said, well, um, this, this all happened when I was 10 years old, but my dad was his surgeon that got me. And she said that, um, she and her siblings always thought that their dad, Dr. Martin was a very cold man. You know, he would come home from, from work and he just, he didn't have a lot to say, just, you know, not very emotional. And I'm, when she's telling me this, I'm thinking, well, he goes to work every day and removes somebody's arm or leg or something. And she said, the night that I heard about Freddie for the first time, he came home and he sat down at the dinner table and he started crying. And we didn't know what, we didn't know what he was crying about. <clears throat> and, um, you know, and my mother told us later that he, he had met this boy, Freddie. Wow. It's um, really powerful. And boy, people you come in contact with through the book, it just, it feels like Freddie's on your shoulder and he's in your heart in what you do with the book and everything to get his name out to really positively impact others. And my hat's off to you on all the great stuff you're doing. It, it's a great privilege to be uh, a messenger and into a Freddie story. It's, uh, you know, it's just, it's such a great story. It's an inspiring story and it has, it has a sad end and yet it doesn't. It, it's ultimately uplifting. And as we finish up, Howard, there's a couple of questions First is you hit upon so many things that Freddie did in, in really 22 years of his life and things that we can learn from. And what I want to ask you is how can Freddie's everlasting legacy have a positive impact on sports today? I think one of the things that you have to take from Freddie's life is that if you dedicate yourself to something and you really look at it and you know, we all know if we're really working at it or we're just going through the motions. 
if you really, that's your dream and you want to get there, you'll get there. Somehow or another, you will get there. I mean, he, you know, he's a little guy and nobody even wants to give him a scholarship and all of a sudden Texas shows up. You just have to do it. And you can't cut corners. And we all know when we cut corners. It's just, it's a way to live your life. I mean, if you look at him as a role model and just try to, try to emulate the things he did. You know, another thing is, is sports involvement. And so many athletes uh, now will tell you, Dave Logan, for example, is a friend who also went to a few years behind Freddie and me. He's the voice of the Denver Broncos now. We all played a number of sports. It was a different sport. One season would end and you'd start the next one. And all these guys are saying it's a terrible mistake for parents to put their kids into a sport and then that's it. And he has to go to camps and he's, you know, he's always doing some kind of thing for that sport. There's just, it, there's a lot wrong with that. And uh, I wish that somehow, you know, we could change that. Freddie couldn't wait for the next sport to start. We won the state championship in football. And that night we played in the first basketball game. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I, I, that. That's a first that I've heard of that. And that's unique and certainly is a reflective of playing multiple sports and uh, no rest for the weary when it comes to the night game. There. You know, Chris, there's another thing that I think is really uh, illustrative of the kind of person Freddie was and the kind of person we can all try to be. In December of 1966, the Pope lifted the ban on eating meat for Catholics on Friday. And probably all, all, all Catholics listening to this will know this. So the first Friday that they could eat meat, Freddie and I, we had a game and we were in my Volkswagen and we're driving around like we did every Friday night until midnight so he could eat a hamburger. And at about 10.30, I said, let's get a hamburger. He said, it's not midnight. And I, I looked at him and I, I couldn't believe that he didn't know this as Catholic as he was. I said, the Pope lifted the ban, Freddie. We don't have to wait anymore. And he said, he lifted the ban to make the church more appealing. That doesn't make it right. We drove around to midnight. We always drove around to midnight. So he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't even compromise his faith on something like that. He was certainly very disciplined. Boy, was he disciplined. Uh, very focused, hardworking, humility. Sometimes these words are thrown around and they not really apply to the meaning. They're just thrown around. But those words that we have talked about, from bravery to courage to toughness, it defines freddie and defines his legacy absolutely does absolutely does i feel a lot of his teammates all through his life we all feel like we were blessed to be in the same place at the same time with him we all we all benefited from that greatly and now hopefully people read the book and they benefit too and i I think that happens i ask all my guests and this is a a lighthearted question if you could pick one sports event I mean, it could be anything to get together with your high school teammates and anyone who was really in contact with Freddie and to go to that sports event, to have a great tailgate beforehand and talk about Freddie's life and, and live with his passion. What would that sports event be and, and who would be playing? You know, we actually, we did that on our 50th anniversary. We all got together. We had a big dinner and talked about Freddie. And then we went to, uh, we were just homecoming again. That would that would be it. You know, a lot of athletes will also tell you, Chris, that high school sports is as good as it gets for a lot of reasons. Certainly, it's you're you're playing for the absolute fun and joy of playing. You make friendships in those sports that never go away. It it changes in college, obviously, and then it really changes as a professional athlete. And a lot of those guys will tell you it's. You really you go back and you think about high school sports, and that's where they end up coaching. Absolutely. What would you like to leave our audience with today? The thing that I would like to leave everybody with, that Freddie would like to leave everybody with, is you know live every single moment as fully as you can live it. Don't slack. Don't cut corners. You're going to leave something behind, and and uh, you know what you leave behind is is going to be what determines how people remember you. And where can we find more information on you and Freddie Steinmark? Well, you can find the book on Amazon. That's the easiest place. I think Barnes & Noble. There's a website, freddiejoesteinmark.com. There's a lot of information on that website, a lot of videos and clips. And um, those are the two best places. 
Towards the end of the book, you have a passage that reads the following. In the span of his short life, Freddie offered much to his family, friends, teammates, coaches, teachers, advisors, and doctors. Freddie's magic was rooted in his ability to help family and friends carry their dreams until they could carry them themselves. He thrilled sports fans and people from all walks of life with his heart, both on and off the field. Bauer, you are carrying Freddie's dream each and every day. And Freddie's smiling. Keep up the great work, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for asking me, Chris. I really, really appreciate it. It was great talking to you. To quote and paraphrase Howard Cosell after Freddie passed away, in a sense, he is representative of the very finest qualities that sport can bring to the human society. The qualities of courage, the qualities of self-sacrifice, the qualities of individual commitment to a group effort, the qualities of how to live with others together. The stories of Freddie, from how he helped his high school teammate Mike Rich, to the kids, people, and staff at MD Anderson in Houston, to everyone in Wheat Ridge, Colorado, and at the University of Texas, and to his family, all these stories are truly reflective of his character and humility. To quote Coach Akers, on and off the field, Freddie always lit it up. Freddie took the ball and threw a lateral to Bauer, and now Bauer is continuing the legacy of Freddie Steinmark. I felt like I knew Freddie after reading the book. We thank Bauer for his time and for coming on the show. And thank you for listening. Our goal is to present a podcast that presents positive and good sports stories. For more information on us, please visit us on our website, foundationsofsports.com, as well as our social networks on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you like what you heard today, pass the show on to a family member or friend and leave us a review. We greatly appreciate all your time and your efforts. If you're new to the show, check out our first 12 episodes. We will see you next time, and as always, best to you and your families. 